Hi, listeners. Before I get started this week, I'd like to ask you for a favor. As you probably know if you've been listening these past few weeks, we're going to be honored at the Boston Preservation Awards on October 15th. We're asking for your vote for the Fan Favorite Award. It only takes a few seconds to vote. Just go to hubhistory.com fan and that'll redirect you. Some of our competition are large companies and they can get every employee to vote. But we're counting on you, our actual fans. That's hubhistory.com slash F-A-N to vote. And thank you. Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 205, Saving History with the Boston Preservation Alliance. Hi, I'm Jake. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Matthew Dickey, the Communications and Operations Manager at the Boston Preservation Alliance. As you heard me say at the top of the show, Hub History is being honored at the Alliance's annual award program next week. Up to this point, every time I've mentioned the Boston Preservation Alliance on the show, it's been to hype up our own award. This week, I want Matthew to tell you about the organization's important work in saving the historic nature of Boston's many diverse neighborhoods. They fight to preserve individual buildings of historic importance, but they also work to keep the cohesion of historic neighborhoods and to raise public awareness through efforts like, well, award ceremonies. Stay tuned to the very end to learn how you can attend this year's virtual Boston Preservation Awards. My entire chat with Matthew will be this week's upcoming historical event, but before that, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection. For my Boston Book Club pick this week, I thought it would be appropriate to stick with the theme of historical preservation. Though she's better known for the book Asphalt Nation, How the Automobile Took Over America and How We Can Take It Back, Brookline native and Boston Globe architecture critic Jane Holtz Kay's first book was all about the history of Boston's architecture and what's been lost in the past 400 years. Originally published in 1980 and updated in 1999, the bluntly titled Lost Boston blends prose with historic photos and maps to uncover some of the grand public buildings, cozy back streets, and iconic details like neon signs and storefronts that have fallen in the name of the greater good. A 1980 review by Henry B. Leonard of Kent State gave the book high marks, saying... For enthusiasts of the hub's built landscape, Lost Boston is a book which will both delight and inform. A longtime resident of the city and student of Boston's art and architecture, Jane Holtz Kay has scoured the collections of numerous institutions to assemble a fascinating collection of photographs which bring back to life both the buildings and, more important, the broad visual aspects of the city, which have been vandalized in the name of progress. This is no dry architectural survey. Rather, Ms. Kay attempts, with great success, to recreate Boston as a work of collective art, as the joint product of its diverse and active citizenry, from the city's 17th century foundations to the 1930s. She effectively brackets lively essays, which describe the historical, architectural, and environmental developments of the city, with photographic portfolios, which are organized around particular themes. As the book's title suggests, virtually all of the photographs are of buildings and prospects now gone. For anyone who knows today's Boston, Ms. Kay's comparison of the past with the present is startling 
and unfortunately depressing as well. I'll include a link to buy the book in this week's show notes, as well as a link to a C-SPAN video of an illustrated talk Jane Holtz K gave at the BPL in the year 2000. Drawing on the research she did for Lost Boston, you'll see many of the images that were used in the book, and you'll get a more opinionated take on Boston's so-called progress, unmoderated by the influence of her editors at Houghton Mifflin. Just go to hubhistory.com slash 205 for the links you need. The rest of this week's show is essentially our featured upcoming event. To learn more about the Boston Preservation Alliance, how to support them, and how you can attend the upcoming virtual awards ceremony, just go to bostonpreservation.org or follow the links in this week's show notes. Now, to tell us more about the Boston Preservation Alliance, I'm joined by Matthew Dickey. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about the Boston Preservation Alliance, I guess, starting with the organization's mission? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our underlying tagline is we preserve, promote, and protect Boston. The Boston Preservation Alliance is a nonprofit organization that prote- it protects and improves the quality of Boston's architectural heritage. And this could be through advocacy and education, and it's by bringing people and organizations together to influence the future of Boston's historic buildings, landscapes, and communities. When you say that you preserve, is it preserve, promote, and protect? Correct. Yeah, preserve, promote, and protect. What does that entail? Is that Boston's built environment or is that historic sites? What What is it that you're protecting? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Basically, we are the independent voice for historic preservation and the quality of Boston's built environment. So it, it could be anything built. It could also be monuments. It could be open space. It could be just we like to be a guide for what Boston can be. When I think of your organization, I think of buildings. So it's interesting to hear that it can be open spaces like park space, I assume, or it can be monuments. So it's more than just historic buildings. Yeah, definitely. It's, it could be landscapes and just the, in communities in general. Um, like an example is right now, there's been a big move in the preservation world that it's not just buildings and it's people that preserve place. So it's focusing on the many stories that the facades of our buildings and our buildings are just vessels of these stories of the people that make them important. That really resonates with me more than just thinking about buildings. Because for me in our podcast, I like to think about the people of Boston's past. So for me, thinking about preservation as a way of preserving those people's stories really resonates more than just thinking about old buildings. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There's more to the story than just a beautiful building. And right. yes, you sometimes you get in preservation, you get the beautiful building, but what about that little shoe shop that maybe not isn't architecturally significant, but is historically and story significant because of the lives that were touched there? So I guess I have an outdated impression of the Boston Preservation Alliance, but as long as I'm thinking about the organization's past, how did this organization come about? Where did the Boston Preservation Alliance get started? It, the, the alliance is an alliance of Boston's organizations that care about their community in place. Um, so it started, we started in 1978. 78. And it was in a formal association of 25 organizations concerned with the city's built environment. And it was mostly just the neighborhood groups that came together and that were interested in the city in some way. The organization did get started by a, a group of community advocates and locals who wanted to have an alliance that was trying to help all the voices of the city. 
and and it's evolved over the years to be really the leading voice of preservation in the city of Boston. And that just basically what that equates to is over 120 some odd meetings attended, <laughs> countless phone calls with advocates and city planners and developers, uh, countless meetings with the Boston Planning and Development, uh, BPDA, and countless many meetings with the zoning and other uh, developers within various neighborhoods of the city to try to guide new projects and new buildings with Boston's best intent in mind. It's like the th the, our number one line is like, Boston doesn't deserve just better. Boston deserves the best. Yeah. So what are some of the projects that the Alliance has been involved with in the past? Maybe some sites that, that folks would recognize. Uh, I mean, I think the biggest one we had is the Sitco sign. Yeah. Is the one that was um, really big a couple of years ago when BU sold the building. And now you're seeing developments happening on that site now, but that is after they've uh, communicated a lot with the Alliance and we've helped guide decisions in the hopes that the sign is saved or that history of Kenmore Square is preserved. Mm -hmm. And then another really big one is there was a lot of talk several years ago. I Don't quote me on the date when. Again, it's before my time there. Also, I'm from St. Louis. I'm more of a Cardinals fan. <laughs> <laughs> the Fenway Park was, uh, they were going to do a lot of work to Fenway Park mm -hmm. and the Alliance was working with the Red Sox and the Red Sox are still uh, avid supporters of ours. They um, did lots of work with them to preserve what was important to the ballpark and the surrounding areas. And that includes up to this recent project where there's, there's, they're doing a, there's a new project happening at Fenway where they're bringing in a performance space. Huh. In, inside Fenway Park? It's not inside. It's adjacent to it and it's connecting to it. And part of that project would remove seats in one of the walls. And so it's altering it, but we think it's done in a way that really integrates and utilizes the space around them better. Oh, so really we've been, they, they, they approached us before they even went out with it and we're asking our advice. So that's just kind of the way that the Alliance as a small organization can have a large community impact. And we're, we're recording this on the anniversary of Ted Williams last at bat with the Red Sox and talking about Fenway Park, which inspired John Updike to write a little piece in the New Yorker called hub fans bid kid adieu, which is a great headline. But he calls Fenway Park in the opening sentence, a lyric little bandbox of a ballpark. So it's great oh, to know that go. we can do things like add a, a venue onto that lyric little bandbox so they still keep the, the essential character of the park. Yeah, yes, exactly. So they, what it was, it was a, it was a the theater with an overlook. So you could go above and see the park. Well, that sounds pretty neat. I've been grilling you a lot about the, the organization's past we are a history podcast but as you pointed out <laughs> you haven't been with the alliance since the beginning so i also want to ask you about what the alliance is doing now so what sort of projects is uh the boston preservation alliance working on right now boston's a very uh, bustling city so there's constantly projects going on it's it's impossible for our staff to get involved with all of them but there are some really big ones and like let's just talk with one that's actually currently being constructed and that is city hall we've been a big advocate for city hall and government services center and that whole wing of uh design that was kind of planned by master plan by IM Pei. And then the plaza was like laid out both in ideas by IM Pei, but then never fully executed. So while we successfully advocated for the continued maintenance of 
Boston City Hall, which the city is doing, and are continually investing in that project. They have also just went out, and don't quote me on the numbers here, but I think it's a $70 million or so project to revamp all of City Hall Plaza. Yeah. And it is currently under construction right now. So if you go there, it looks like a construction site. Uh, we had a couple of suggestions. They were, again, contacted us early on in the process, and we've been working with a number of constituents with the project. And our number one concern was making sure that the historical context of City Hall was always remembered and that the entry points to the City Hall was, were, were still kind of intact. So I, I know that City Hall Plaza originally had a few more softer edges. It's a lot of hardscape right now, but I know it had mm-hmm, some softer mm-hmm. edges in the original design with a little more planters. There was a, I want to say a fountain, but it's almost more of like a no, no, there small was a river. It's that- actually, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. The fountain right now, the fountain head is actually um, revealed because they took out that concrete caps. If you go by right now, you can see that. I have to swing by. Is the new revision incorporating more to uh, more sort of organic soft scaping or one of the biggest things is it makes it a lot more human friendly that would be <laughs> it's, terrific it's, it's, <laughs> it's no longer just this like a uh, barren land of, of of concrete and brick and stone um just in the middle of the city there's going to be lots of trees added to it and it's going to be a 100 ada compliant so oh. it's a lot more literally accessible um and then there's a planning for there's a new park like a children's park and play area around the bend closer to like the um faneuil hall area side of it and then on the other side you see a lot more parks and they have the fountain kind of uncovered the design of that has been incorporated into the current design you do projects at different scales also i know from just browsing the website in the last couple of days that there's a an ongoing project on Stanhope Street. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? It won't be quite as immediately recognizable as City Hall Plaza, but folks might might get a kick out of that. That was really fun because uh, personally, on my uh, Instagram account right now, I've been doing lots of research on uh, Muse Streets. Muses are like these these roads that were for stables. And one of the biggest ones in Boston being Byron Street and the Beacon Hill. And it's just a big, long street of just these former stable homes, or stable or carriage houses that are now private residences. Mm-hmm. And Stanhope Street was like one of those. It was this row of stables that were there. Now, uh, we know one of the locations is Friendly Toast. That's the neighboring property. And then this property that you're talking about is... Um, to give folks a reference, this is... Almost right out the back door of Back Bay Station, sort of across Clarendon from Back Bay, little row of mostly restaurants on that street now on Stanhope, that that part of Stanhope. So is your project between the Friendly Toast and Flower Bakery? Exactly, yeah. Because there's a Los Lung Stables that are right there. Then the Flower Bakery building is a current taller structure that's I don't remember the dates of it, but it's not the it's not part of this development. I never stopped to consider the yeah, the the friendly toast and red lantern. The the red lantern. Yeah, the sort of squat, cute little buildings. I'd never stopped to think that they were former stables. Exactly. That's pretty neat. And at this time, the interiors have been 
changed many, many times. So the, the, for us as preservation isn't about the interiors of the building. It's, it's about preserving that streetscape. And it's not solely about just saying preserve this in amber. We know that the city is going to change and we know that you, you need to have an adaptive city to be viable for the future. So we don't want to just say like, no, nothing. We're not like NIMBYs, you know? So, so yes, we, we do think that that element of those stables there are part of a unique fabric of the city that can be over, easily overlooked. And, and, but for everybody that's there, it's, it's, it holds this memory to them. And so if we can somehow preserve that, that streetscape, that, that architectural character there while building above and adapting and adaptively reusing the space, then that's all the better because you get a, something unique and you get this new space that can be used. But we do know that if these buildings are demolished, that it's probably going to set a precedent for the rest of the street. Next thing you know, it's all going to be gone. The owner is, um, Rosalind Gorin, and we've been working with her since the begin for for a while now, and and she does agree that if the anything happens to the building, that is going to set a precedent for the areas near it. What's really fascinating though about this project is that it is currently up for a, to be a landmark, and that kind of adds we support it becoming a landmark as well. But the thing is that just because you're a landmark doesn't mean you can't change it. A landmark just means you have to have a well-vetted and intelligent change that goes with it. So it, so long as it follows guidelines, you can change a landmark building. Landmark doesn't set it in stone. And this is my own ignorance, but who grants landmark status? Is that a, a city designation, a state designation, national register of historic places? What what sort of landmark are we talking about? So I th- the only thing that can preserve a building from being demolished in a city is local designation. So when you see something on the National Historic District or a national, not National Historic District, that's something different, a National Historic Landmark that does not protect it from demolition that just says it it is an architecturally significant or historically significant building you shouldn't demolish them but we can't stop you from doing that a local designation can can halt demolition and so like for the stanhope project they do want to give it a landmark status but they don't want to give it like a you can't change the status so we we are for it to become a landmark building so long as the facade is preserved, that streetscape is maintained and the new building is well-designed and interesting. You know, I think about the projects we've discussed so far. We've talked about the Sitco sign. We've talked about the Red Lantern on Stanhope Street. We've talked about City Hall Plaza. These are very different structures, very different places in Boston. How does the Alliance decide what to get involved with? I, I, I don't want to use the words, how do they decide what's worth saving? But that's almost in the back of my mind. What makes those very different projects similar enough to get involved in each? A lot of the times the way it starts, and this is me saying this as the guy who does operations and uh, communications, not the one who's on the ground doing the preservation work. So I'm I'm just the storyteller who gets it afterwards. I'm not the one getting into the nitty and gritty, right? But I know that for us, what gets us involved in the first place is to know if there's like, one, is it something that's architecturally significant? Two, is the community that's surrounding the building really adamant about the storyline and they, they want something to preserve. So for example, there's projects, let's, let's just give you some rough ones in Jamaica Plain. 
a good example is Doyle's, right? Um, we've been involved in that for a long time, and that's just a, it's an old restaurant. Is the building itself historically significant? Hard to argue that it is. The interiors and the memories made within it are extremely significant. And the heritage that is there is extremely significant. But the community is enamored by that history. And so we can give guidance to that. And so it's kind of this, the community's concern that kind of gets us going. Or sometimes it could be the Mass Historical Commission will give us a, a, a tip that something is happening. Or um, maybe it's a developer sometimes will come to us right away and be like, hey, we're looking to do this. That's like the case in uh, Stanhope. We were very early on or Fenway Park. They get involved very early and we kind of help them through various processes. But again, there, then there are times when we are, we get, uh, inklings through the paper or like anybody else. And it could be, I think there's only a 90 day limit on the demolition delay. And that's very little to find any significance for a building and to come to a solution to save it. So lots of these times it has to be the developer and those who are involved in all the constituents who are willing to adapt to the structure or to the space. Like another one is a good example is the Hurley building. And that's the, it's another downtown building, but it's a uh, Paul Rudolph and company's part of government services center. And this, the state wants to sell it, but they didn't just flat out say, we're going to sell this for this much money. Here it is. They're trying to work a way that can best preserve what's there to work out a solution. That's a, a, a creative solution to the city's needs and the state's needs and the community's needs. This isn't the building with the angry frog, is yes, it? Yes, it is. It's not not uh, technically that building. That's the Lindemann building, which is the others. They they don't look like they're separate buildings, but there are two separate buildings that are just connected right next to each other. But the Lindemann building and the Hurley building make up Government Services Center. You mentioned what a tight timeline it can be uh, with a 90-day turnaround to try and do the research and determine whether something's significant or not. That made me think or made me wonder – have there been missed opportunities? Have there been buildings or projects that either during your tenure with the organization or, or before that you wish there had been an opportunity to preserve? I mean, there's things that I think about all the time that are just, that are, that are no longer around that I'm like, oh, it would be so cool to see that. Like, like old Scully Square or Pemberton Square or, or the um, what is that? The, the, the West End entirely. Uh, yeah, right? all the West End. We could get we could talk about that because that's prevalent right now too. With um, MGH, they're doing. Uh, they want to expand, and again, there's like I believe there's something like twelve or so buildings. That's it. That remain of the historic West End, and MGH wants to demolish three of them. So that there you go. That's a fourth of the history gone, and that's why right. you can't let places. As we as an organization, we don't want to let places just go. It's like, oh, it's just one building or it's just one building or it's just one building. Because actually, you know, the whole neighborhood's gone and you, that, that history's lost. Mm-hmm. So, we, we try to avoid that. And we have been in communication with the MGH and we came out to them and we, were, we, we really asked them to think about other solutions. And they said none of them were viable. So, now there's still this conversation going back and forth about what is possible. And... um and what we can do in the community, I know, really wants to see these buildings preserved because, again, there's so few of them. But, like, like I think about, like, I love the Red Hat and seeing that, which is a, a bar in um, historic Scully Square, but now just looks like it's nestled into Beacon Hill. 
And it's like the last surviving restaurant from that time. It's like one of the only things that are left. And you get to, you get a little sense of what it was like. Um, I also love seeing all the old streetcars that used to be around Boston. I live in Dorchester and Columbia Road had a streetcar. And now there's a, a project that Historic Boston Inc. now owns that called the Comfort Station, which was basically the, the bathrooms for the old street trolley that are being adaptively reused. Where is that? It's on Columbia Road in Dorchester, right next to the Dorchester North Burial Ground. The only comfort station I knew of was on the common. <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah. It's very similar to that. And it's a very small building. It's been sitting vacant for forever. And the reason that it was there is because there used to be streetcars that went up and down uh, Columbia Road right there. I was like, oh, that'd be convenient because I live near there. <laughs> so- <laughs> yeah, which you can – those streetcars are probably now in San Francisco. I know anytime I'm in San Francisco, I see old – Boston uh, oh, yeah. PCC cars <laughs> on their streetcar lines because they went and bought all the cities that were phasing out their streetcars. They went around and bought them all up and put them back. Oh, in interesting. Years. Interesting. I love that. So it's like, I love little stories like that. There's just so many things like, and the thing that I hate is that when you get these buildings of character and they're just built with, this is me just being like a naysayer, grumpy man, but it just gets built with lackluster architecture. And as a bad preservationist, I'd be fine demolishing an old building if it was, for, if it was uh, replaced with something that's absolutely outstanding, but it so rarely is. And by the time you go through all the planning thing, it just becomes a, an, it looks like it starts to look like everywhere America and Boston shouldn't look that way. Right. Um, and then I also think about like things that are kind of decaying that I think are just sad to me. And that is like one of those is the Ali Ablana brewery. And a lot of people don't know that uh, along the Stony Brook, there was once 40, or so breweries in Boston. That is on my list of future podcast topics. I would really love to dig into that more. Is this one of the ones right along Heath Street? Exactly, yeah. So there's one in Heath Street that we, that I believe won a preservation prize not that long ago. It was a great adaptive reuse project. And then the, the Ali Ablana just sits there vacant with like trees growing out on the roof. And the owner is just holding on to it, probably waiting for it to be demoed by neglect kind of situation. Right. And right now there's nothing that we can do as a community because they own it. They're following the rules of the minimalist, minimal standard possible. And it's just sitting there and there's like just so much history in that. But the thing is, it's not the history that little thing that 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 tethers me or like pulls in my heartstrings a little bit that's going to be lost. It's just like there's so much potential for this unique structure to exist, and like the the crazy potential of that building is also what I think is like what I love about historic places is that we're we're just stewards of these places right now. We're not going to be the ones who are going to keep them in amber. They're going to change. And they're, they're, we're just adding new layers to their histories. You see it work both ways throughout Boston's neighborhoods. I live in the Reedville section of Hyde Park, which is, I want to say, formerly industrial. I, a lot of people here would tell you it's still an industrial area, but that's really formerly industrial. The biggest employer in the area back in the early 80s was Westinghouse. They had a huge factory. Oh, wow. Here. Okay. You know, Westinghouse hadn't manufactured anything in Hyde Park in 20 years or something now, or maybe longer. Mm-hmm. but. The building is a tech company headquarters. It's lofts. There's a school inside. So, you know, that, that building still anchors that end of Reedville. It's just not making transistors or, uh, it wasn't trans. I think it was industrial fans they made there. 
But when you get to places that are extremely successful and they're continual layering, you get to these, these, these really cool places that are like, um, I'm thinking about some of our upcoming preservation prize winners, like the substation in Roslindale. It was this, this building that created the electricity for the, the train systems. And now it is a brewery in a community space. And so it's like, oh, that's perfect. And um, it was the train that supplied basically all the back and forth for people to get out to the breweries that line the Stony Brook. So you mentioned the Rosadale substation being honored this year with a, a preservation award. And that actually, that's a good segue. I meant to ask you about the Boston Preservation Awards. How long has that uh, that event been happening? Yeah, so this is our 32nd Preservation Achievement Award, so a bit of time. Wow, that's great. Yeah. What does the Alliance hope that presenting these awards each year does, either for the organization, for the city, for architecture? What's the idea behind creating an award? The idea is that we have a, a, a place, a platform to celebrate great preservation and it's also not just pres- it's not just preserving a building in amber. It's it's it, we also give awards to compatible new construction. So it's anything that celebrates the city's built environment. And they're looked upon award winners are looked upon as models for future preservation work. And we believe that creating a better future for Boston lies in preserving its past. So these are kind of our exemplary projects. Anybody can apply. So this year we got anything from a, a individual who nominated their own smaller project to uh, universities nominating one of their larger projects. And it, it's open into a podcast that is that is telling stories. <laughs> for example. For example. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so congratulations also on winning this year's – one of this year's awards. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that's mostly the theme behind it. People or organizations submit their projects for consideration. I guess, what's the uh, thought process like behind choosing an honoree? So, how are projects selected to be honored? So, they're all selected. So, I, I will say that while the Alliance puts out the, the call, we have a separate panel or committee that picks the winners from the pool of applicants. So it's not the people of the, the staff of the Alliance aren't the ones who get, to, who get that say. We put it at the call out there, but then it's the members of the various communities, our board, some of our advisors, some of our very young advisors that are all on this committee. We're always looking for new volunteers for people to be involved in this. So if you're interested, let us know. You can submit, and the things we don't want to make it seem like you have to be this glitzy drone footage kind of uh, application. We want it to be open to anybody. For like, for example, somebody who did a carriage house adaptive reuse project one a couple of years ago in Dorchester, and it was an awesome project. Just the the owner just submitted it, and they won it. So we want to keep it easy for people to do it and there's no cost. And our goal is to try to get places that we might not have known about. It's like, yeah, we, we all know about the big ones, right? Like, like we all know about, what's a great example, like, like city City hall plaza. Plaza. Yeah. We all know about like, Oh, they're preserving city hall plaza or, or I just saw that the dome of the state house was under scaffolding for forever. Oh, they did a great job. Yeah. We know these projects and those teams are probably going to submit, but we don't know about these smaller places in the communities 
And so we, we really encourage every, anybody to apply. It could be anything from your, your small house. Maybe it's preserving a triple decker and creatively you reusing the space or we're, we're always looking for something that uses architecture, preservation, history and the built environment as a creative solution for the future. And surfacing some of the projects that otherwise might be overlooked, it sounds like. So it's not just always the same large developers or big institutions. You're, you're going out into the neighborhoods and, and finding honorees that, that might otherwise not be we seen. We hope to do that. It's sometimes cool. it's, it's difficult for a staff of four. But like, like, for example, like last year, last year we had the, um, Longfellow Bridge was a winner. I mean, look at it. It looks amazing. She's like, I want to make sense, right? But, but then we also had a little farm out in Mattapan called the Fowler Clark Epstein Farm that was submitted for an award. And it's these, these little, we want to see more of the communities because I really think it's the, it's the smaller neighborhoods of Boston that actually make the culture of Boston. So I want to see some of those preserved. An award ceremony in COVID season is a special case. Mm -hmm. I assume in a normal year, non 2020 year, there would be a ballroom somewhere and invited guests would come in and, and watch the award ceremony, but we're in a pandemic. So what does an award ceremony look like in a pandemic season? So you can find all the things, all the information you ever wanted to know, maybe a little bit more on our website at bostonpreservation.org slash awards slash 2020. And you can register and it's going to be a virtual event this year. However, it is going to be hosted by Katie Couric. And we usually do these little, um, they're mostly slideshows, but this year they're full on videos with drone footage. We hired a great filmmaker to help us make videos that really showcase all of the award winners and honor their projects and their works that they put into things, such as Hub History Podcast, for example. And we, we interviewed you guys right underneath the shadows of the Old North Church. And uh, we interviewed all of the project winners on site to hear their stories and about why, why go through the trouble in spending the money and the research and the time on the craftsmanship in loving these buildings to preserve them for the next generations to come. And we hope to share a little teaser of all of those videos along with our host, Katie Couric, uh, some of our award winners, and then we're going to roll out longer form three to five minutes videos of each project in the weeks after the awards of October 15th. That's going to be the kind of idea for this year. There is also going to be afterwards a networking session where you can hop in and hop out of each networking room. So you have that ability to meet some of these award winners and some of these project teams who are behind the projects. So it kind of gives you an insider view about what development in Boston is like. So I think it's going to be a fun time, um, as, as fun as we can be in your virtual world. The event is free. The after networking session does have a cost of $100. We have a request for a donation just to help us continue to do our work. You can also follow along on social media. We'll be getting everything out there eventually. Those are the Boston Preservation Awards. But before I start wrapping up, I also want to ask about... Matthew Dick. Oh, that is me. That's that is you. So, how did you end up at the Boston Preservation Alliance? What in your background or your experience led you there? Hmm, yeah, so I do have a, a, a slightly obsessive interest in architecture and the built environment, and just just 
telling people the stories of the history, the histories of places. Like, like even the most popular sites that you know of in the city, there's a lot more to the story than what you know. And it's, um, I like to spark that little uh, morsel of curiosity to let people dive deeper into the places that surround them. And so when the position came open to the Alliance, it's kind of like, well, I get to do this and to get an insider perspective of some of the things that happen here. It's like, that sounds sweet. And so that's kind of how I, I got involved. Um, a couple of years ago, I did a big project with the National Trust for Historic Preservation where I joined them to, uh, preserve Route 66. So I hopped in on their caravan on an airstream and drove the route with them for a couple of weeks and did that project. That was kind of like a, my entryway into that. And I got that because I had been heavily involved in this group called the Rust Belt Coalition of Young Preservationists. I'm from the St. Louis area, big Rust Belt city, and we like to showcase our Rust Belt charm. And we do that by visiting a different city every, usually about two a year. We've been doing this now for several years, except for this year because reasons. So that's just, it's just, just been in a constant evolution of uh, an obsession with architecture. You may be from St. Louis, but you're in Boston now. So I have to ask, so leaving the Alliance aside, doesn't matter whether the Alliance had any involvement or not. What are some of your favorite buildings here in Boston? Hmm. Well, I do love the city hall, but I love some, I think my favorite building in the city could be the class of 1959 chapel designed by Moshi Softy. It's the, the Harvard chapel on their business school campus and it's this little jewel box but it was built in like the 90s 1992 so it's very postmodern in aesthetics and design but you walk in it's just like something that not many people in boston know that exists i see it as harvard's answer to the mit chapel designed by Eero Saarinen. And then I just love, like, I love just finding the different houses and the triple deckers of the city or the, the walkability and the getting lost in these little roads. Like I've really just now in COVID times, I've been spending a lot more time in my own city discovering things that I didn't know were there. And so like, like the people's firehouse in Charlestown, it was saved twice by the local community when it was twice going to be removed from the neighborhood. And twice the community was all like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and it's still there and it's still a fire station. And that's amazing. Um, or I do also really love the uh, five cent savings bank, I think is what it's called, which is designed by the same architect as a Boston city hall. And it's just, yeah. I didn't know that. And so was the courthouse. That one's another weird one because it's much different generation, but same architect. Um, and the five cent savings bank is the, uh, it was a Borders for a bit. It's right across the street from the uh, Old South Meeting House. Love that building. Then I, I also really love the 75 Federal Building right across the street from South Station. I believe that was a TAC building, the Architects Collaborative. And it's it's the one that starts off really narrow then has a can cantilever that goes up and then it goes straight up. Oh, yeah. It's very yeah. black and ominiscent. Walk in that direction and he's like, whoa, okay. But I love that building. Um, I mean, I also love a good, clever house. There's a house on Taylor Street. I know some of my colleagues just really hate it, but I love it. And it's this, it was an old wooden, one of the oldest wooden framed homes of the South End. And it was demolished and they made them put it back up. And they did this clever combination of old and new from appearance, even though it's all new. 
I just love that building too. I mean, I could follow me on Instagram. I'll point out the things I love every day. Uh, there's another new obsession has been narrow houses. I've been just, there's three of them that I was like, I wonder which one of these is really the narrowest house. And so I did go out on a bike ride with a tape measure and it is that one on whole street. It is the <laughs> narrowest house by a solid two feet. Didn't get any funny looks as you rolled up in front of folks' houses. With kind of a little bit. Yeah. The, the thing that really got me is I, Posting on Instagram, the owners of every house have reached out to me. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you do have the narrowest. Your house is actually three inches narrower than the other one. There was a one in Beacon Hill, the North End, and Charlestown are all up in contention, I thought. But there might be others that I don't know about. Just anything with an architectural oddity. There's a great history of Bay Village with used to be like the center of the filming industry. And there's all these rows of homes there that were like basically, basically these uh, filming studios. And one of them is a perfectly adaptively reused small house. I love it. It's got a blue facade with a painted round window or it's painted blue brick and it's got these round windows inside from a more recent uh, update. It's another favorite of mine. There's tons of little gems around here to be discovered. So if people want to follow you on social media or they want to f- catch up with the Boston Preservation Alliance online, where should they look for information about you, about the organization, or about the upcoming award ceremony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to find me, Matthew Dickey, I'm mostly on Instagram at underscore M A Dickey underscore. And it's mostly buildings all the time. Um, if you're looking for the Boston Preservation Alliance, you can find us on Instagram at Boston Preservation Alliance, online at bostonpreservation.org, and you can join us and learn everything about Katie Couric and our upcoming award winners, including Hub History and eight others, at bostonpreservation.org slash awards slash 2020. One thing I do want to be that that people just understand is that if there's ever anything in your neighborhood that you really want to know more about or you really think deserves to be preserved or a story or history that you think really is significant in your community, you should write to us and tell us about it because we want to be the organization that can help share and spread those stories and those histories because there's always more to the story and we want to make sure that we tell the full story of a place. So, in, again, it's really difficult for us as a staff of four to focus on everything. But if we have everybody out there as kind of our eyes and ears to what's going on in the community, we can help share and preserve a more diverse and interesting Boston. Matthew Dickey, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. All right. Thank you for having me. Before I wrap up, I just want to say a big thank you to all our Patreon sponsors. These are the folks who commit to giving $2, $5, or even $10 a month to support the show. Their kind support helps us offset the costs of making Hub history. Costs like web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, audio processing, and transcription. In return, they can earn special perks like Hub history stickers, access to the script I write for each show, and even monthly video chats. If you'd like to join them and become a sponsor of the show, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. To learn more about the Boston Preservation Alliance, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 205. I'll have links to the Alliance's website, 
a direct link to register to attend the Preservation Awards, and links to their social media profiles. I'll also link to Matthew's personal Instagram, where you can see a lot of creative pictures of Boston's architecture. And of course, I'll have links to information about Jane Holtz Kay's Lost Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line. We'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 